What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Are you taking your pills today? No. Then I'm going to get them. And then we're going to have dinner. And then we're going to go to bed. And then we're going to get up. And we'll try and start again. Thank goodness. I was worried we'd never be able to get past that Revenant Hateful Eight fight we had last week, Josh. I think listeners were more worried than we were. That's definitely true. No fighting this week as we talk about one of our favorite films of 2015, 45 years, which is finally playing here in Chicago and hopefully in a city near you. The Oscar-nominated Charlotte Rampling in that clip with the should-have-been Oscar-nominated Tom Courtney. That review in part two of our 2016 movie preview ahead on Film Spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform. We're going to get to a great listener testimonial here in a second, but want to reinforce all the great things about Squarespace for any of our listeners who are considering building a website. First off, the sites look professionally designed regardless of how skilled you are. There is no coding required. Their tools are intuitive and easy to use with state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. It's trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. Squarespace is currently offering a free domain if you sign up for a year. So maybe, Josh, you have a great title for a website or a project or a podcast, but you're not really ready to start actually producing it yet. You can just secure the domain name and sit on the hosting for a little while. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. We did hear from Laura Carlson, who's the Programming and Communications Coordinator at Calgary Cinematheque, a nonprofit film organization in Calgary, Canada. She's been using Squarespace for over two years to showcase their eclectic programming. The simple drag-and-drop tools, she says, make it easy to display upcoming screenings in calendar view, add ticket links for online sales, and group archives by series. This season's programming ranges from a Robert Altman Master Series to a spotlight on spaghetti westerns. We showcase underexposed world cinema in our Contemporary World series, which offer one-time opportunities to see films such as Alex Ross Perry's Queen of Earth and Hong Sang-soo's Right Now, Wrong Then. To get a sample of the programming we offer, visit calgarycinema.org. We couldn't be happier with the simplicity of Squarespace, which gives us more time to do what we love, watch movies. A great message there. Thank you, Laura, and a great testimonial. We know we have listeners in the Calgary, Alberta area, and I hope they are frequenting the Calgary Cinema Tech. Sounds like they've got a great lineup coming. If you're out there listening and Squarespace sounds like the right fit for you, make sure to use the offer code FILM when you visit squarespace.com to get a special offer on your first purchase. Again, that's squarespace.com and offer code FILM, and we'll link to Laura's website in our show notes at filmspotting.net. You're listening to Film Spotting, where last week we began our two-part look-ahead the year in movies. We shared our top five most anticipated films of 2016, and there were so many good movies coming out that it prompted us to create another list focusing on our biggest questions of the movie year. Genevieve Kosky, the esteemed producer of the Next Picture Show podcast, will join us later in the show to share those questions. But first, Adam and I are entering our fifth year of partnership in 2016. I'm not sure that qualifies us as old marrieds in podcasting terms, but we promise only cozy domestic tranquility in our review of the much-praised marriage drama, 45 Years. 
It's a shame not to have more photos around the house. I guess we didn't see the point of taking pictures of ourselves. It's a shame. Come on. What are you doing? Come on. I'm not prancing around in the living room at this time of night. <laughs> this really is a great venue for an anniversary. So full of history, you see. Like a good marriage. What is it? They found her. You know who I'm talking about, don't you? We never talked about it in all the years that we've known each other. And it's tainted everything. You didn't know her? No. I didn't. Adam, we're both fortunate enough to be in fairly long-term marriages with years and years of history and shared experience. Yet compared to the couple in Andrew Hayes' 45 years, we're not even at the midpoint. Kate and Jeff Mercer, played by Academy Award nominee Charlotte Rampling and Tom Courtenay, are about to celebrate their 45th wedding anniversary when Jeff receives a letter related to his youth. Although it reveals nothing immediately jarring, I'm not sure how many details we want to get into, it does open a window to the past that suddenly can't be shut. In the span of a day, a marriage that had been founded on a comfortable, mutually agreed-upon narrative has suddenly become far more convoluted, and the movie, with great delicacy and nearly invisible performances, traces the repercussions of that. Certainly 45 years is accomplished enough to engross all sorts of audiences, but I'm especially curious to ask this about your experience, Adam. Did the movie reveal anything new to you about marriage that you didn't already know? And if so, how do the creative choices made by Hay and his two formidable co-stars play a part in that revelation? I have a lot to say here, Josh, so settle in. Okay. First, I do want to acknowledge that you beat me to the punch. I was going to make a joke about how nice this is because last week we talked about two movies that had nothing at all to do with marriage and we bickered like an old married couple. And this week we've got a movie about an old married couple that we should discuss like a couple of newlyweds. That's what I'm anticipating. Let's try. Anyway, I love this movie. I loved it when I saw it five weeks ago and I rated it my number three movie of 2015. I love it even more after rewatching it last night. And your question is perfect because it gets at what I think really had such a profound impact on me. I don't really go into narrative movies expecting them to reveal anything new to me. That's a big burden to shoulder, and it kind of gets back a little bit to the fight we had last week, too. But my expectations for a narrative are different from, say, a documentary, which can expose you to people, places, things, events that you genuinely had no concept of or had no real understanding of. Now, a recent narrative movie that challenges everything I just said is actually Inside Out. And I talked about this during our review of it, that most of us probably have a pretty clear sense that it's healthy to not just try to ignore or dismiss sadness and pain. That's not necessarily earth-shattering, but there was something in the way that Pixar film linked sadness and pain to joy and asked us to embrace those emotions, embrace our grief. Whether 9 out of 10 psychologists agree with that or not, I don't care. That felt revelatory to me. But that's rare. More often for me, what I respond to in drama isn't what it shows me that's new, but what it shows me that feels familiar and truthful, how it makes me confront truths that maybe I've always been aware of. And 45 years is achingly truthful, and not just in what it says about my marriage or your marriage or anybody else's marriage, but in how it depicts the complexity of relationships, 
of aging, of life in general. I'll give you a few scenes to consider. There's a conversation fairly early in the movie where they've had dinner, and I think they're maybe drinking some wine and just sitting on the couch talking. And I believe it's Kate who points out that she kind of regrets that they don't have more pictures up mm-hmm. around the house. And that prompts the discussion about what kind of pictures should they have. And they reminisce a little bit. And it culminates with her saying, I suppose we don't realize at the time, but those memories, they're the things, aren't they? And that's a little ironic as the movie plays out that she can have that epiphany and yet not be fully able to grasp how his memories of that former love are, in fact, maybe for him, the things. But I already, Josh, think all the time about Sarah and me in our first apartment together, just starting a family. We're barely making ends meet. At the time, you never imagine that those are the best years of your life. But I think a lot of people in their middle or old age will tell you looking back that they were. Those are things I already sort of romanticize and dwell on. There's a conversation that they have here, Jeff and Kate, in bed where he's opening up about his relationship with Katya. And it ends on a little bit of a sour note after something she says. And his response is, I'm tired. And she says, should I turn out the light? He says, yes. And there's this long pause. And she says, I'm quite tired too. And I think that exchange and the way she looks at him and the way the camera lingers on her face in the dark after she turns out the light, that's marriage in a microcosm, right? Sometimes you want to go to bed. Sometimes your partner isn't ready. Maybe they want to lay there and watch a little bit of TV. Well, one of you is going to capitulate. You have to. And even the coda, I'm quite tired too. It's almost like she fully can't let him win, right? She'll capitulate, but only if it's clear it's also on her terms. And that brings me to my favorite moment in the film, my favorite line of 2015, and maybe one of the most bracingly truthful lines I've encountered in cinema in recent memory. It's an exchange between Kate and her friend after they've left a diner and the two husbands have gone off to talk and now the two wives have gone off to shop a little bit. I think maybe they're looking for a dress for this big 45-year anniversary party on Saturday. And the friend is saying how I know based on experience, the time George and I had our big anniversary celebration, he's going to bawl. He's going to break down into tears. And Kate basically says, well, Jeff isn't really that type. And the friend explains, that's why these things are important, these events. Not just husbands, all men. It's always them that break first. We hold it together because we already know how important these things are. That devastated me because she's right. And I think I'm that man. I'm that husband. When I really think about, for example walking my daughter Sophie down the aisle someday. And I do think about those things. And handing her off, I get really emotional. But if I really think about it, Josh, what I'm really getting emotional about isn't that my baby has grown up, that her youth is behind her, but that I'm grown up, that my youth is behind me. And even worse, I feel like I've missed it. I feel like I've missed a good chunk of it. Maybe I've taken fatherhood for granted. I haven't been as present as I should be. You know who won't cry at all when my daughter's being walked down the aisle? my wife, because she already knows how important these things are. She's always known. She's never taken it for granted. She's never not been present. And the scene ends with another great line from that friend where she says, men are obsessed with their obituaries, their legacies. It's so true. It's all about my vanity. It's all about my ego more than anything else. I think this movie is just filled with these types of honest, 
really provocative moments. Well, let's just face it. Sarah's a much heartier soul than you. That's part of it, too. Yeah. And in every way, a better person. But <laughs> I digress. You know, I, we should say, first off, that Katya, who you reference, is a woman from Jeff's youth. And that's what the letter involves. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's all we need to say about it. it. There's just a revelation that Kate learned something she didn't know before, something significant. I don't mean to downplay it. But uh, the, the way it sort of uh, builds between them over the course of these few days just really ruptures their relationship, or at least, uh, like I said, the story that they've been telling to each other about each other. So many truthful Mm -hmm. moments here. No matter what your relationship history has been in your life, if you've had any sort of deep connection with someone else or you've witnessed one as the child of long-married parents or grandparents, whatever it might be, this movie just hits one truthful moment after another. And a lot of that is due to this symbiotic joint performance Mm -hmm. between Rampling and Courtney that we should definitely, and I'm sure we will, get into. But you brought up that scene where they're wondering about no pictures in the house and how it would be a nice way to remember the past. And the one thing that maybe reveal is too strong of a word, but but reinforced to me Mm -hmm. about marriage. And uh, this is something that maybe I think about more too, the older I get, is how much the present actually matters, even if it's the most mundane present ever. Mm -hmm. You tend to, as you were talking about, romanticize the past perhaps a little bit or look ahead or plan to the future. But what this movie shows is that these are two characters who become obsessed with the past in a way, and they completely negate their present. Mm -hmm. And it's at the risk of their future. And that hanging in the balance for me made this movie a continual, it was just on the edge of tragedy and very suspenseful. Yeah, it's a ticking clock movie oh, in a yes. way, right? Every day, a countdown to that moment. And you're right, everything you're saying fits in perfectly with And that. we should you know, not give too much away about the ending, but the way it handles that question mm-hmm. is... Uh, tragic and beautiful at the same time. Absolutely. So, so yeah, watching this was was very revealing to me and reinforcing to me. And uh, there's just an exquisite pain throughout the whole picture that Rampling especially captures mm-hmm. in her face and her reactions and even her her thoughtful glances. You know, the thing about her and, and Courtney together, they're they're very similar. It came to mind to me as what uh, Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara are doing in Carol, where it's hard to imagine one of those characters without the other yeah. when you think about the movie afterwards and the performances without the other because they play off each other so often and so integrally and so crucially. Um, but really, I know you're going to champion for Courtney here and well, I'll I probably agree with you. But the things that Rampling does in some of these medium shots where she's just gazing out a window, it's one of these middle distance gazes that actors often do to communicate thoughtfulness. Mm -hmm. I don't know, having never acted, if it's easy or hard to do something like that. But it seemed to me the way she was handling it is in a way that I very rarely have witnessed where she can communicate with a slight flutter of her eyelids or how she refocuses that gaze Mm -hmm. from far middle distance to close (laughs) middle distance. You know that she's just traveled from the past. It's like a time machine moment in the way that she just slightly alters her expression. So she's traveled from this newly revealed troubled past or torturing past to her now into this troubled present. And in that one gesture, everything has shifted 
hugely for her. And to watch an actress pull that off, mm-hmm. um, that's maybe not the invisible acting I'm alluding to because you can you can see how she's doing it a little bit and it's still impressive. Yeah. Uh, and the scenes with Courtney are the invisible ones. Where yeah, you're completely. Just, you're just, you know, sitting there watching these two living with them mm-hmm. in a way that feels absolutely 100% authentic. Well, the camera also, I think, renders him a little bit invisible, which maybe we'll get into a little bit more here as we discuss the new film from the director of a good movie from a few years ago, a really good movie, Weekend, writer-director Andrew Hay. And I'm with you completely on the performances. Charlotte Rampling, I mentioned, I think last week on the show, that it was between her and Nina Haas from Phoenix for my favorite female performance of the year. And Tom Courtney, I actually had in the top spot on the male side. And I think it is because of that difference in their performance, where Rampling's is a little bit more actorly, but again, the camera is also focused on her a lot more and asking of her a lot more. But Courtney is still able to draw us into his character to allow us to empathize with him completely, even though he's someone who is not only marginalized a little bit by the frame, but also the guy who is, because he can't let the past go immediately, he's the one who could be seen as sabotaging their present and their future. He's kind of ruining things by and not by, letting this and go. And by withholding something for so many years as well. Absolutely. So I think the fact that I was still so drawn to his character and cared about him so much is due to his performance. Not a spoiler to say there is a scene. It's especially not a spoiler because I alluded to a conversation earlier in the film that sets it up. He has a breakdown moment that is perfection. You know it's coming because the movie set it up. And yet it still caught me off guard. I was still surprised at how it unfolded and the way he handled it in the moment. I mean, the character Jeff handled it in the moment. And just throughout, his lack of vanity is really something amazing. Courtney is an actor who doesn't implore the audience to feel a certain way about him. He doesn't entreat us to do anything. And I guess what I'm saying is there's just not a moment in his performance that calls attention to itself. Right. He's completely unaware that there is an audience. That's it. He exists on screen. And I love even these little touches, whether they're actual little sense memory exercises or not. But he is talking about his former love and what's become of her. And I don't really think that's a spoiler. It's the opening scene of the film where we find out what happened to this woman from 50 years ago that he was in love with. But he is thinking about her trapped in ice, frozen. And he starts to actually kind of fold his arms over his chest as if he needs to keep himself warm. There's another moment where he's telling Kate, and of course, I don't think it's an accident that his girlfriend was named Katya, and he married a woman, also a brunette named Kate. They're two versions of perhaps the same woman, or she's sort of the copy who's a little bit inferior maybe to the original. But he's telling her about a ring she wore that he probably gave to her. And he actually starts fiddling with his finger as if maybe he had placed it there. So those little touches are just perfect. And Rampling, I thought you did a wonderful job articulating it. It's so hard sometimes to articulate what moves you about a performance. And I love to use the word nuanced as a crutch, probably. But just look at Rampling's performance. And that's what I mean. I was constantly surprised by the choices she made as a performer, which what that really means is I was surprised by how the character reacted and responded and the manner in which they acted in every scene. And I think that usually stems from me feeling like they're truly making it up as they go along. Mm. Now, of course, she isn't. Rampling isn't. It's almost certainly meticulously prepared. I'm guessing with a film like this, they probably even meticulously rehearse the scenes. But in the moment, Rampling is never playing a character with a rigidly defined set of traits, and she's going to continue to just hit those beats. Her in a smiles, lot of ways, she responds yeah. in 
a manner I didn't expect. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That surprise. Her smiles are always different. Her expressions of sadness and shock are always a little bit different. They always feel new. They always reveal a little bit more than the last one we saw. Yeah, it's been an odd day. Sure has. Yeah, I just uh, <clears throat> stayed, stayed at home, you know, grappling with the ball cock. But you, you're right. I hardly go walking anymore. It was a nice day, so uh, off I went. So where did you go? Just to the village. To buy cigarettes? Mm. <laughs> I lost my sense of smell, you know. Mm-hmm. I just don't want us to start smoking again. No, I, I won't. I won't. Right. Okay. Go on. I will say about Courtney's, some of the things he did reminded me a little bit of Bruce Dern's performance in Nebraska in the way now these are older men facing very different situations, mm-hmm. um, I- including in terms of health. But he does cleverly play up the doddering. Totally. Does. totally. And, and so I what we're asking here is at what point, and I think this really comes to fruition in the final scenes, you know, what point is he deceiving Kate? At what point is he deceiving us? And at what point is he deceiving himself? Mm -hmm. You mentioned the camera in terms of him and what I was thinking about the way Hay places the camera is that it's so respectful of their private space. And it begins that way Mm -hmm. where we see Kate taking a walk along their country road with her dog and we're we're very much away from her in a long shot. Uh, And that continues when we get to the house, often we'll be in another room watching Watching the two of them in a room past a door frame. And it's just giving them that marital intimacy. There's another shot where they're having a conversation in the yard and we stay in the kitchen. We stay in the kitchen. And watch them through the window. The bathroom scene is one early on where I think she's putting a bandage on him and we're in the hallway or in another room. And it just... It, it just emphasized what the characters themselves were doing. We're creating this bubble that the two of them for four decades plus have created and live in mm-hmm. and no one else, even someone who's spying like we are, can quite get in there. And because we're not right up in their faces, we feel that all the more. Yeah. And I think what we're given are two really flawed characters. And I think, again, that speaks to how much work Courtney does in his secondary role that we still understand the process he's going through and feel for him, I think, almost as much as we do Rampling's character because of his performance. But this is her movie, not his. It opens mm-hmm. on her walking the dog. It ends very much on her. And it's focused on her most often in between. But that doesn't mean we're expected to constantly see the world from her perspective. She's a little bit of a schoolmarm. There's no doubt about it. I think that opening exchange she has with a guy, I think, who's delivering mail, and that sets up that he was a former student of hers. And that sense of her being a former teacher goes throughout the entire movie, right? She corrects at one point the guy who's showing her the hall where they're going to have right. the party. It's not even about correcting. It's about him relishing the fact that they had the Trafalgar ball there and the victory had been won. She's like, yeah, but Nelson was dead. Like yeah. She has to dwell on something she, negative about it. And she doesn't want to be impressed by no, his that's sales right. pitch. And, exactly. Yeah. And the way after he goes to get a book on climate change and then they're going to meet their friends and they're talking and he's going on about climate change and she really couldn't care less and is actually a little bit maybe disturbed by his sudden interest. And she says to him, put your book away. Like a child, he has to do what she tells him to do. And I love, too, when he goes to have a smoke. Of course, he says, don't be cross. I'm going to have a smoke. Don't be cross. Like he has to tell his mom. Like he almost has to ask for permission. And there are other moments of that where she corrects him or sets him straight. And one perfect silent 
marital exchange where he's reading Kierkegaard all of a sudden. And of course, her response is, you're going at that again. You've never gotten past chapter two. And he just stops and he stares at her and he turns away. There's nothing said in that moment. So I I think what I want to say, though, Josh, is something you put very well in your intro. You mentioned how they're playing these mutually agreed upon narratives. And now that's been shattered a little bit. She's carved out a role for herself Mm -hmm. as that school alarm character, as that motherly character to him almost. And the role he's allowed himself to play is the baby in that scenario, the child, the doddering old man that depends on her. And that is what makes this whole thing so upsetting then, is that once this new wrinkle is introduced, he's not in control of himself anymore, which means she's not in control of him. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to say is I, I wouldn't describe she has those qualities, but I wouldn't describe them in an ungenerous way because mm-hmm. I do think it's what it is, if you'll notice, and I'd have to go back and watch the early scenes again, but there is less of that before the letter is read Mm -hmm. and it increases significantly as their tension increases. And so this is perhaps a role they've played to some degree throughout their lives, these parts that you're talking about, the student and the the school teacher. Mm -hmm. But it seemed to me at the very beginning, they were very comfortable in it. And it was almost reassuring when they're talking about the photos that conversation has a little bit element of what you're referring to, but it's very comfortable and joking. Agreed. You know, and, and then it, but that starts to split. Yeah, it's not and a it's harsh type of correction that she's doing. But it gets harsher. But it gets Yeah, it definitely harsher, yeah. gets harsher. And he gets, and then he gets more resentful mm-hmm. as things go on as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we were dancing around a little bit, the framing and sort of how much Hay divides them with the camera. Think about how many shots, and really it's almost every shot except for a couple key scenes, where there's a very clear split. Sometimes we are at a remove and we're looking at them both in the frame. But more often than not, Josh, she's the one who's facing the camera and he's in profile. Mm -hmm. And often he's in shadow as well. Even that opening scene where he's reading the letter, the camera's on her having a drink of water beginning her day, her normal routine. This tumultuous moment within him is happening right behind her. The camera isn't really interested in what he's processing in the moment. It's interested in what she's doing Mm -hmm. and how then she's going to be drawn into that tumultuous moment. There's a scene where they have a little bit of a confrontation about a picture he's looking at, and she makes him hand the picture down to him. We don't see him hand the picture down or how he reacts Hey, lets him stay up in the attic as he hands the picture down, and we see how she processes that moment looking at the picture. Even when they're in the car, she's always in the foreground, and he's in the background. There are only a few moments, and it's usually when he's telling a story about his past, where he's really opening up about something, where Hey will give him the dominance in the frame. But otherwise, it's all about how she is taking in those moments. And did you find that fair? Because there was some discussion on the next picture show where they were comparing 45 years to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I haven't finished about that yet. Whether, but, okay, yeah. well, they, they get into whether there should have been more of Jeff's perspective in this film. And to me, it goes back to what you were saying about right from the start. That's what I'm saying. We, we know that the... I knew what to expect. The viewpoint is Kate's and yeah. it's going to be her story and her experience. And I, what I see is a huge level of generosity in the space that, hey, and despite the camera work you're talking about, which Mm -hmm. is very true, but he still allows space for Jeff's story to be 
rich enough and followed enough that we do have empathy for him and understanding for him. And obviously, Courtney's performance has a lot to do with that, too. You mentioned the attic, and mm-hmm. there's a crucial scene in the attic. One of my scenes of the year, yep. Contenders, remember? Yeah, yep. and uh, it's it's so the sound design in that scene oh. alone, where she is, she's come across some slides mm-hmm. of Jeff's and uh, puts them in a player, and they start clicking and it's like gunshots. And did you catch you know? that the clicking is what opens this oh, film right. too, yeah, yeah. right? As and we I see thought, the titles. You know, I didn't yeah. know that uh, when I watched this and I thought that sounds like a slide projector because yeah. it's just a blank screen in the titles and sure enough, it comes back. But there's there are other sort of – the sound design has a, a couple of metaphysical touches to it that – adds a lot to what maybe sounds like this rather staid domestic drama. A lot of that has to do with the music that's chosen. They mm-hmm. have shared songs, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, Happy Together, play important, crucial roles in the film, and how those reoccur is crucial. But even the wind in that attic mm-hmm. that's whistling through that, it's one of these attics where it's the ceiling of the hallway that you have to pull the stairs down. And that wakes her up at one point. Yeah. Uh, you know, at midnight, she gets out of bed and goes. And, and there's just this ghostly presence. She even puts her hand to feel the wind coming through. And mm-hmm. it's as if, you know, it, it's calling her, obviously. And that's where the past is. That's where he has his stuff. And this is before she even goes up there. It's sort of this this tragic call that uh, you you hope she you want her to answer because you want to find out what's up there, but mm-hmm. you don't want her to answer because you know it's only going to wreck her more, most likely. Yeah, that scene is incredible, and obviously I don't want to dissect it too much to potentially ruin it for people who haven't seen the movie yet and will get to experience it the way we did. But the best use of sound in that entire scene for me is actually the end of it. Because she's watching these slides, she's looking back at this past that she wasn't a part of, seeing the face of this woman, her doppelganger in a way. He couldn't have found a better visual motif to stage this than to have this slide projector showing against a white sheet and then framing it so that we get to watch Kate's face the Mm -hmm. entire time. We're also seeing Katya's face coming through the sheet. And then after she finally has taken it in and had enough... The light goes dark, but the camera lingers just long enough to hear her breathe. Mm. There's that sigh. And I just think very few directors would have that kind of sensitive touch to allow that kind of moment to happen. Yeah, to let you really feel the impact, the bodily impact that that this has had on her. 45 Years is currently out here in Chicago. It just opened this past weekend, and it is out in limited release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Well, Adam left his guitar at home this time for Massacre Theater. There's a bass, Josh. Sorry, they don't call those guitars? (laughs) I suppose. See how much I know. We'll try to make up for that by mimicking a pair of fairly iconic voices next. Stay with us.
Hey folks, just jumping in for a second to let you know that this episode of Film Spotting is also brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic film. Certainly fitting into the independent category. I got some love in on last week's show for Kevin Smith on one of his podcasts where he paid tribute to Alan Rickman and Mubi is currently offering the movie that really made Kevin Smith clerks. It is the film that made Smith an unlikely voice of a generation at Sundance 94 with this grungy, witty, cheerfully vulgar comedy sensation about a group of aimless 20-somethings with nothing to do but tangle their love lives and debate Star Wars. A DIY indie touchstone Mubi says quite right. It's been a long time since I've watched Clerks. Movie's other recommendation I've never seen, it's The Square. It won the Audience Award at Sundance in 2013, and that was just the start for this hot-button documentary. It went on to critical acclaim and an Oscar nomination. Movie says The Square is a passionate and valuable look at our rapidly changing time. Every day, Movie's curators introduce a new title, and then you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, and you get this for just $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use Mubi's mobile app, you can download films to watch offline. Film spotting listeners can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash film spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash film spotting. Fifty-five was a glorious year for Mouton Rochelle. Better than fifty-three, I think. Don't you? May I ask you something? Certainly, Henrietta. Have you ever tasted Morgan Davis' extra-heavy Malaga wine with soda and lime juice? Uh, not that I can recall. One of my students happened to introduce it to me on a field trip to the Canary Islands. It tastes a little like grape juice, and every year is good. Welcome back to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh, Walter Matthau, and Elaine May in a clip there from Elaine May's debut film as a writer and director, 1971's A New Leaf. Josh, it is the first film, or it will be the first film, in our upcoming Elaine May marathon, I think originally promised here on Film Spotting for a 2014 release, that marathon. That's not too bad. No. We're, there we're like are, there are others that have been promised <laughs> exactly. a lot earlier that have not been gotten to. So Yeah, we did have this scheduled for 2014. It is sad to say we were going to do the Elaine May Marathon along with the John Cassavetes Marathon and the Satchajit Ray Marathon. And then a whole lot of unfortunate events and scheduling conflicts happened in 2014 that prevented us from having a marathon. The first year in the history of the show since the marathons began that we weren't able to get to a marathon. And then in 2015, we only got to one, but it was way, a good we one. made up for it. It was a good one. Satchajit Ray. So we are happy to bring back the marathons to revive them. And we are going to stick to our promise of looking back on the work of Elaine May, of course, known maybe best even more so than a filmmaker as the comedic partner of Mike Nichols, Nichols and May, before she really embarked on her filmmaking career. But we're excited to see A New Leaf. Hopefully you have enough time to get your hands on that movie and participate in the marathon. Josh, do you want to quickly list the four titles we're going to be discussing? Yeah, and here's where you can find them as well. So 1971's A New Leaf, that's pretty widely available. iTunes, Vudu, Netflix, DVD has it. And then Amazon, of course, you can get the DVD and Blu-ray. The Heartbreak Kid from 1972. We're going to send you to your local libraries for that one. It's kind of tough to find, but the libraries have bailed us out in the past. So hopefully that will work for you as well. 
Mikey and Nikki from 1976. Netflix has that on DVD. And then Ishtar, this one from 1987, pretty widely available as well. iTunes, Vudu, Amazon has it on DVD, Blu-ray. Two-time Oscar nominee May was for writing Heaven Can Wait with Warren Beatty and her adaptation of the 1992 Clinton campaign book, Primary Colors, that was directed by her former partner, Mike Nichols. Again, a new leaf. We're going to start with it next week on the show. And then our plan right now is to do one per month. We're going to sprinkle them in throughout the winter and spring here, I guess, and wrap up the marathon in May. And hopefully we'll have time to get to another marathon here in 2016. We'll do our best. Quick note here, I want to acknowledge something that I should have acknowledged last show when I was picking the BFG as my most anticipated film of 2016. I talked a lot about the screenwriter of that film, Melissa Matheson, without having heard that she actually passed away last November. I, I didn't see that in the news cycle. Yeah, a listener shared that with and us on And a couple Twitter. listeners did point that out. So just to speak a little bit more to her work, because she has been you know, crucial to some of the more beloved films from my childhood. I mentioned E.T., wrote the screenplay for that. And uh, The Black Stallion from 1979, I think that made one of my top five lists at some point in the show's history, uh, directed by Carol Ballard. Wonderful film. Also, children's material that she was working with there. So the hope is that doing something similar in adapting Roald Dahl's The BFG for Steven Spielberg, that this film will honor her legacy in that manner, too. We also wanted to share some information for our local Chicago listeners, if they haven't already been made aware of it, about the Music Box Theater's third 70 millimeter film festival it starts february 19th through march 10th and sadly i have always wanted to attend one of these 70 millimeter fest screenings over the past two years and never been able to fit it into my schedule but especially josh now that my daughter sophie has gotten so into cinema and thinks she wants to be a director someday maybe now i can actually get in some family time while also getting in some film spotting time and i'm really hoping to take her to at least one of these screenings are there any titles here i don't think the actual Dates and times have come out, but from the list of titles they are planning to run, what jumps out to you? So maybe we'll make this a film spotting family trip because I was thinking the same thing, but what might work best for the kids? West Side Story, yeah. perhaps? really want to take Sophie to that. I was also thinking about maybe Lawrence and the of Wild Arabia. Bunch. Definitely the Wild Bunch. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> but Lawrence of Arabia, I mean, I it's thought so, about that too. so long, but mm-hmm. they might be able to stick with it. I think I saw that fairly young it's at a revival screening of some sort that my parents took me to. I'm also interested in Interstellar just because that's one that you didn't underwhelmed enough. me quite a bit. And yeah. so obviously it deserves another chance. What better way to give it that? Cleopatra, you know, the you must remember this podcast, the episode on Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. I don't think it spent a lot of time no, in that didn't. phase of her career, but just reignited my interest in her as an actress. And I've never seen Cleopatra. No, so again, what better way yeah. to watch it? So there are a lot to choose from here. Yeah, indeed. 2001 A Space Odyssey. I mean, I haven't seen it on the big screen ever. I didn't watch You've it gotta do that. on the big screen. I've talked we about my Cinerama. Cow, yeah. yeah, I was lucky enough to see it at the Cinerama Dome in LA. So I wouldn't probably rush out to see it this time. But if you never have, you've mm-hmm. got to do it. Yeah, both times I've seen it were on televisions. One, a fairly big television, but that certainly doesn't count, especially when you can see it in 70 millimeter. And I not only think Sophie could be mesmerized by it, but I have a 13-year-old son, soon to be 14-year-old son, who already knows the legacy of this movie, even though he's not a big movie guy. He's a big science fiction kid. Okay, there you go. And he's fascinated by 
the myth of this film. So maybe I can take both of them to see that. Of course, being a huge Paul Thomas Anderson fan and someone who was a huge fan of Inherent Vice, his most recent film, Beyond Junoon, which of course came out this year, the documentary, that would be a fun one to see on the big screen. And I'm not sure that I thought of it as a film or will think of it as a film that lends itself perfectly to 70 millimeter, but I've always been such a huge fan of John Carpenter's Starman. And I think that's another one that at least two of my kids might have fun with. And you realize what we haven't even mentioned yet? The sight and sound best film of all time, Vertigo, is going to be a part oh, of man. this. So there you go. How do you pick? But that's another one. Quick digression. 11-year-old daughter, no matter how mature you think she is, is she ready for Vertigo? Are any of us ready for Vertigo? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, probably I don't know. not. She is writing a paper on Hitchcock right now okay, at well, school. Okay, well, then you kind of so have to. <laughs> I kind of have to take her to Vertigo. We will link to more information about the Music Box 70 millimeter Film Festival in our show notes at filmspotting.net, and maybe we will see you at some of these screenings. Also at our website, that's where you can participate in our current poll question. This is, as we said, part two of our 2016 movie preview. On part one last week, we asked you to pick which of these three movies by directors we love that's coming out in the first half of the year you're most excited to see. Your choices were in chronological order, the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar, against Jeff Nichols' Midnight Special, against Richard Linklater's Everybody Wants Some, which a lot are calling a successor in a way or a spiritual sequel to Dazed and Confused, this one taking place in the 80s, not the 70s. Sam said it might go like this, Josh. If you recall, as we were discussing this poll question, he threw out the challenge, is this really a good three-way death match? Isn't the Coen Brothers movie just going to dominate? He asked me, would you, as the world's biggest Jeff Nichols fan, even vote for Midnight Special ahead of the Coen Brothers? And I said, yeah, actually, that's where I think I'm voting. I think the poll question is sound. And once again, Sam proving to be prescient and always correct. The Coen brothers running away with this one. Maybe it wasn't as good a question as I hoped it would be. Well, and so much for our influence. I went with you on Midnight Special and didn't Didn't seem to matter. No, it's like 75% right now, the Coen brothers. That doesn't mean you shouldn't make your voice heard. We may share your voice and some of your comments to the poll on our next show. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. And if you do leave a comment, please let us know where you're listening from. I think a perfect follow-up from all the talk of nuance and powerful performances in Andrew Hayes' 45 years, we got to get to Massacre Theater, Josh. It's the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. Back at our year-end rap party, which was recorded live at the main stage, Adam and I, along with musical guest Abraham Levitan, massacred this scene. All right, gang, let's really nail it this time. Here we go. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Bum. <laughs> She's got a smile that it seems to me Reminds me of childhood memories Where everything was as fresh as a bright blue sky All right, Tommy, you're the oldest. I'm counting on you. Come on. She's got eyes of the bluest skies As if they thought of rain I hate to look into those eyes And see Vibrato, buddy. All right, all right, Alice, let's go. Flat. It's so flat. I can't even, I don't even know. You don't even look good while you're singing. The worst thing I've ever heard. This is $1,200 a week for voice lessons, and this is what I get? Okay, I'm going to save it with the solo. Bow, bow, I'm dead. And I can sing
That was Adam Scott hitting the high note like I couldn't. And Catherine Hahn and a pair of Pitch Perfect children in a scene from 2008's Step Brothers. Written by Will Ferrell and Adam McKay and directed by McKay. The tie-in? Well, I saw this fairly early you on, did. but it seemed to <laughs> slip past some other people. Yes. We'll let listener Ian Armstrong explain the big overlooked connection. Ian's writing to us from Lancaster, California, which he dubs Film Spotting's Desert Outpost. We'll go with it. I always look forward to Massacre Theater, but there has never been a better one than on the live year-end wrap-up show. I laughed as hard at your version of that scene as I did at the original scene in Step Brothers. There are undoubtedly numerous connections, but the obvious one to me is this scene, and the rest of Step Brothers was directed by the same man who helmed Adam's number one film of the year, The Big Short, Adam McKay, thanks for all the fun and all the discussion. Jim McDevitt wrote from L.A. by way of Boston. The tie-in, of course, is that it's an a cappella performance of Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child of Mine. And at the live show where you guys performed it, Pitch Perfect 2, a film about an a cappella competition, was all Adam wanted to talk about. That wasn't my plan going in, it but I like how it worked out. <laughs> quite a bit. I have to say, Jim continues, this is a truly sad day for film spotting since you'll have to now retire the segment as nothing will ever be this great again. Thanks for everything. Keep up the good work. P.S. The Hateful Eight Revenant discussion made me feel like a child hiding on the stairs while my parents argued in the kitchen. It's not your fault, Jim. It's okay, Jim. It's not your fault. You can come down now. (laughs) Matthew Gorecki in North Hollywood, California with more. The scene recalls Adam's choice for musical moment of the year. Our listeners love to go with some deep cuts here, Josh. The epic disco interlude from Alex Garland's Ex Machina where Oscar Isaac's Nathan dances to get down Saturday night with Kyoko. Though perfect by the time Donald Gleason's Caleb witnesses it, the dance is obviously the result of long lonely hours of practice, and Nathan performs the dance with the same air of joyless detachment that he carries throughout the movie. Likewise, the family sing-along in Step Brothers is not fun for anybody in the car except Derek. Both Isaac's Nathan and Scott's Derek have roped creatures of their own creation with limited agency of their own into heavily choreographed musical routines. Thanks for choosing one of my favorite movies for this edition of Massacre Theater and for pointing me towards dozens of movies that have become my favorites throughout the years. And I mentioned how deep Matthew went with this parallel. He even went into some detail about how Catherine Hahn's revenge on her husband and stepbrothers matched a female revenge act in the movie Ex Machina. I think Matthew's out there in North Hollywood still working on this. Exactly. Impressive. One more note here from Glenn Myers. He's from Aurora, Illinois. Connection. Story of two guys with differing views of the world brought together by external forces who unite to create something entertaining. There you go. That's really what we are <laughs> after all along. Thank you to everybody who played Massacre Theater. Josh, reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. I think you should have to sing it, actually. No, I, I did that at <laughs> the gonna live show. You're going to back down now? Yeah, There's yeah. nobody here but there me. There were hours of rehearsal uh-huh. went into that. I can't just pull it off off the cuff like this. The winner is... Christina Ecternkamp. She lives in Salt Lake City, Utah. Congratulations, Christina. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. That was the greatest acting I have ever seen. I just don't know how you do it, Gary. How do you make yourself so somber and emotional to make everybody cry like that? It's not that hard, really. I just think about the saddest moment in my life. Josh, sometimes here on the show we massacre classics, sometimes... We don't. I think this violates your rule of yeah. a movie I have to have enjoyed. Yes, that's that went usually out the window. what I go for. That but... went out the window a while ago, I think, and I'm so glad it did. Yeah, we think this one is appropriate, though, for this show, and that's why we're going to do it. What did you say earlier to recognizable voices? I'd say they're iconic. I would agree with you, and yet, as and we, were, clearly be we were discussing a little bit off-air, prepping for the scene, you've got a voice that I think— 
is the easier one to try and hit, while I have no idea how to attempt I'll admit this it man's is. voice. Yeah. Okay. So you've got the easier role as long as everyone knows that. It's true. And they hear me and say, what is Adam doing except sounding like Adam? They understand <laughs> that I just was stymied by this one. If anyone has any ideas after they hear it about how I could have approached it, I'm all ears. Well, they'll have to have recognized it That's at what least I'm a little bit to yeah. know who you're trying to do. Exactly. Let's, you'll find it. You'll find it in the moment. I believe it. <laughs> I won't. I so won't. But we'll give it a shot. You start it off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Yes. And action. If you don't get out of here right now. You have no idea how far I'll go. How far? Tell me. Sure, we've been horrible to each other, but we had something. We still do. We haven't passed any point of no return. I have. I'm not convinced. Nobody who makes pate this good can be all bad. That depends on what the pate is made of. Woof. And see, wow, you just you just took all the life out of her, Josh. I'm a little out of breath. Uh, Very breathy. Ellie's fine, by the way. Okay, good. Yeah, my dog is okay. Thank you for reassuring me. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, February 8th. Despite the easy roll, I don't think I got it. (laughs) The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. A quick scene there from Son of Saul, one of the nominees for the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar at the Academy Awards. It is opening here in Chicago this weekend and is out in limited release. And regular listeners of Film Spotting may recall that this film came up a little bit during our Top 10 of the Year roundtable back in mid-December with Michael Phillips from The Tribune, Scott Tobias from The Next Picture Show, and various other outlets. Those two had seen it at the time and both considered it among the best films of the year. Michael actually had it in his top 10. Josh, we hadn't seen it at that time, and I still unfortunately haven't had a chance to catch up with it. But we talked about the divisive response this movie has engendered set in a concentration camp. And because of its point of view, its limited point of view, I know there are some out there that feel like this movie is perhaps a little bit exploitative and really not one of the best films of the year. As you are recommending it, I'm guessing you were more in line with Michael and Scott. Might have made my list, to be really? honest with you. Yeah, it's it was an overpowering experience. I didn't find it exploitative or to to get that effect from me in ways that were dishonest or disrespectful. It, it just That's just not how I viewed the film. And maybe the best place to start here is with the technique that you mentioned. And uh, it's this, you know, it's academy ratio. So almost a square is what we're given. So we're already confined with that sort of frame. And then the camera pretty much maintains a close medium shot, I'd say, of the main character, Saul, who's played by Geza Rorig here for first-time director Laszlo Nemes. So you're usually looking at his face when you're not, if you're looking over his shoulders. Essentially what happens is all of the horrific things that are going on because he does work as a member of the Sonderkommando who would usher new prisoners into the gas chambers 
collect their clothes while they were in there and then move the bodies afterwards. Mm. But we see all of this at the corners of the frame and it's very frantic. And so, for example, these bodies are like these white, almost abstract flashes at the corner of the frame. And it's, it's yeah, just devastating. I, you could either say we're being spared there or it's more torturous because it's allowing our imaginations to fill in those gaps. And I think here's the crux of where some people have responded negatively to the film is asking, well, is this a, a fair way to depict such a historical event? Or it gets into the argument of should there even be Holocaust films at all? I've seen that brought back to light in relation to Son of Saul. So for me, all I can say that it it was monumental to not even experience it this way, but to consider the Holocaust in this way with this technique because it relocated this mass atrocity to a personal level. So it's blurring everything else, confining us to this one man's experience. And I think for me what that did is it zeroed in on, on humanity in the singular and reminded us that every single life that was lost distinctly mattered. I, I think sometimes, you know, when we think about this as a historical event or even after the picture and we take a breath and we pause to consider the bigger history that it takes place within, um, you know, we might start thinking it again as numbers or dates or things like that. And, and this movie made the large-scale loss of the Holocaust just feel all the more catastrophic because uh, each individual life had that sort of uh, just heft to it because of this experience. So uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a grueling watch, um, but uh, I think it's one that can stand among the films that I've seen that have addressed the Holocaust. It, it, it does so in a new way so that it acts as a distinct form of remembrance. Mm. I wish I could say I can't wait to see it. The reality is I'm not sure I've sturdied myself enough yet to see it, but it's on my list without a doubt again opening this weekend here in Chicago. All right. Part two of our 2016 movie preview is just ahead. We had so many questions about the coming year in cinema that we brought in Genevieve Kosky of the Next Picture Show podcast to help us out. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. I'm so close to falling And I can't make sense of your confidence I know that look in your eye What you say and mean are two different things Donation and thank you time here on Film Spotting. But first, we wanted to acknowledge our featured musical artist this week, The Noise FM, Chicago indie rock by way of small town Kansas. They are longtime listeners of Film Spotting. At least a couple members of the band I know came out to our 
year-end rap party at Main Stage a few weeks ago. We thank them for that. You're hearing music from their 2013 album, Attraction, and they're playing Shubas here in Chicago on February 26th. We also got this great note from a listener who is out at Sundance with her husband, and of course, we're jealous that we weren't able to make it this year. You made it to Sundance for your first time last year. That only makes it worse, though. Yeah, exactly. I used to be jealous of what I didn't really know, Uh and now... It's doubly bad. Exactly. Especially as we follow film Twitter, we're keeping tabs on all these other critics and some of them are our friends and we're seeing all the fun they're having and all the movies they're watching and we feel left out of their reindeer games. I don't think I've been to Sundance, unfortunately, since 2012, maybe even earlier. But we heard from Stephanie who says we were walking into the Greasy Strangler Party. That is actually the name of a movie. I believe it's a comedy horror indie movie playing at Sundance, the Greasy Strangler. And... They saw Werner Herzog, film spotting legend (laughs) Werner Herzog. Stephanie writes, my husband told him we enjoyed his work and asked if it would be okay if we took a picture. He said, Josh, do you want to do you want to go for the the Bavarian accent here? Yes, but we must be quick and we must not smile. I didn't hear I didn't hear enough like existential angst in there to be Werner Herzog. (laughs) It wasn't pessimistic enough. This is also his philosophy for life too, right? That was a little cheerful, but (laughs) how about that? He gives you a great line like that. And then they took the picture and Stephanie sent us the picture, which we are both looking at. We'll link to it. We got to share this. Yeah, we'll link to it in our show notes. (laughs) It looks like he's cracking a little bit of a smile though. No. I think Werner is just getting a little too cheerful in his older age. It's exactly what people are imagining in their heads. (laughs) Maybe they are. Thank you, Stephanie, for that. We're getting to donations, and I mentioned last week how we had so many that came in that had built up over the holidays that we were going to kind of skip past some of the comments and just get the names, and then we would share a few of the notes for this week's mailbag. And that's, in fact, what we're going to do. So we have some new donors this week, and then we have some others whose names you may have heard last week on the show, but we didn't get into their comments. And we're going to start with Lindsay in Omaha. I'm a truck driver that's been listening to you since 2007 while driving, and it's time I chip in a little. Thanks for all you do. Jacob in Denver also featured on last week's show as our movie testimonialist, and he writes, been listening to the show for around three years or so and always meant to send in a donation but never did. I figured, why not now? I set it up for $2 a month, which if you do a show once a week, that's a half a buck a show donation, yeah? Your show was the first podcast I ever listened to and the only one that stayed consistent for me. It's gotten me through multiple cross-country drives as well as my typical 9 to 5 workday sitting behind a computer screen. John from Philadelphia says he's a pretty new listener, but I've been catching up with a lot of the shows and knew I had to donate when I listened to the review of one of my favorite movies and Adam defended it. Specifically, the performance of Ryan Gosling, the movie, of course, is dry. Love it. We also heard from Sarah Arnoden in Asheville, North Carolina. And Sarah has a habit of doing this here during donations on the show. Happy birthday to my husband, Edwin, who knows that even when I say to him, where's my boyfriend? I like that Wookiee. What I mean is that he makes me happier than Jason Siegel dancing in a church fellowship hall without the inner turmoil. Okay. Can you unpack that, Josh? Because I'm not sure I can. No, I think that's the kind of shorthand that comes with uh, being married 45 years. Exactly. And I don't think they're quite there yet, but they've been together a while. I think at least since the beginning of film spotting. Thank you, Sarah. Congratulations to Edwin on yet another birthday. Edwin does review movies for the Asheville Citizen Times. Buck a show donors. We have two new Buck a show donors, including Doug in Palo Alto, California, who says your weekly conversations have made my longtime love of movies all the more deeper. And Robert in Richmond, Maine. I could not let a whole nother year go by without donating. Well Thanks played. for letting me do that one. 
Thank you for the wise insights and reasonably accessible discussion. Reasonably accessible discussion. That's our next T-shirt or the slogan on our website. That'll bring them in by droves. Another new Buck of Show donor, Jerry Romano in Seattle. Thank you, Jerry. We also heard from Silver Club donor Chris Bentley-Smith in Cambridge, UK. Time to pay the dealer once again. The time of year feels appropriate to do what with it being top 10 time. Again, a kind of old donation here. Living in the UK, you always set me up with an excellent 2C list for January and February and inevitably unearth a gem or two that I had never heard of before. Thank you, Chris. And thank you as well to another Silver Club donor, Mark in Dallas, Texas. $5 a month donor here, Sarah from San Francisco, California. I just began my monthly donation on behalf of my boyfriend, Tom Dean. He's a longtime listener and I wanted to extend my thanks to the entire film spotting crew for bringing him such joy. Happy holidays and I love you, Tom. Yeah, I think last week on the show, I listed Sarah in San Francisco as the donor and she was probably thinking, hey now, I sent you the money so that you could dedicate this to Tom. We apologize for that. Wanted to make sure we got it in this week. Happy holidays to you, Tom from us as well. Tony Gallegos in Denver, Colorado wrote in with this. It's my first time writing in. I've been listening for the past year and I started donating today. I listened to the backlog of shows while I studied for the bar exam last summer and your show was a welcome break from lecture. I passed, by the way. Congratulations, Tony. I listened to your Elizabethtown review from 2005. In the review, Adam and Sammy said the movie was missing John Cusack. Orlando Bloom didn't make the role the way Cusack would. Then you guys made a list of actors who could be the next Lloyd Dobler, i.e. the next generation's John Cusack. Topher Grace was the top choice. My question is this. With 10 years passing since your review and a whole slew of actors entering the fray, many of whom are millennials who are highly influenced by 80s and 90s pop culture, have you changed your mind? Do we have a new John Cusack? Would your list be different? Obviously, Topher Grace hasn't done much in the past decade. Anyway, I just thought it would be interesting to do a new list 10 years later. I love the show. You are the best part of my morning commute. Keep it up. That was a respectable prediction. I would have been there with you on that. In 05, 10 years ago? I was excited about the He was showing some chops, and Mm -hmm. we thought he might be the guy. In fact, a listener inspired by mine and Sammy's thoughts on this subject sent us a revised Elizabethtown poster with Topher Grace's head on the body of Orlando Bloom and I believe Reese Witherspoon replacing Kirsten Dunst. Interesting. It definitely looked like a better film, but... (laughs) Who knows? Who knows how that would have turned out? I wish I had a great answer for this. I really haven't given it any thought at all. No. Nobody comes immediately to mind, but maybe our I've listeners out there have thoughts. You. I love it. Miles Teller? Yeah. You know what? He would fit totally in that. Seems to have a yeah. somewhat similar personality mm-hmm. and uh, isn't the conventionally handsome mm-hmm. Hollywood yeah. boy star. So okay. Well, maybe. Well, or maybe one of the other seven actors who might be up for Han Solo would be a good fit. You never know, just like Teller is. We close with a platinum-level donation from Tom Freeman in L.A. Very generous. Thank you, Tom. And before that, a gold-level donation that came to us from our Massacre Theater winner, Chris Berkheimer in San Marcos, Texas. He's the one who had his name read at the live show just before we absolutely butchered Guns N' Roses. And I do love this trend of people getting a T-shirt from us and choosing to overpay for that t-shirt, Josh. Film spotting has been a constant throughout my 20s and the only podcast that has stayed in my rotation since I received my first iPod. Now I'm almost 30, married, and own every Powell and Pressburger film from the marathon. Much love to Adam, Josh, Sam, and Maddie Ballgame. May God bless. And Josh, try a few beers from Three Floyds Brewing with your portion of the donation. You won't regret it. I actually don't give Josh any portion of the donations. <laughs> Occasionally so. I get a beer. Occasionally you do get a beer. That might work. You can um, order that one. I put in a request for Three Floyd's Dreadnought IPA. Okay. I, I'm partial to that one. Duly noted. 
Thank you to Chris, who sent along some other great comments, and to all of our listeners who donated. We really appreciate every single cent that we get. Hey, this is Mark Duplass, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Gentlemen, I hope you appreciate the situation. Things have gone south. No doubt. Now, whatever you saw or did is no longer my concern. But let's be clear, it won't end well. This is Film Spotting. That was a scene from one of a handful of promising looking titles coming out in 2016 that are directed by a former Film Spotting Golden Brick winner, Green Room, the director Jeremy Sunier, who made the movie Blue Ruin a couple years back. We will talk a little bit more about some of those titles in a moment. But first, we want to welcome in our special guest this week, helping us out with part two of our top five most anticipated movies of 2016 from the Next Picture Show podcast, Genevieve Kosky. Thank you, Genevieve, for stopping by. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to see that Scott and Tasha haven't shared horror stories about their experiences and <laughs> no, scared you away. I actually co-hosted with Scott uh, while you two were off on some That's right. grand vacation. Oh, you remember. Yeah, yeah, that was last yeah, but, year. But we got to run the place. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> That's it. She's never uh, been yeah. on with yeah. us before, but she's actually run the board here on the show. This should be fun, though, as we get into our... Films of 2016, the ones we're most looking forward to, and some of those questions. First, I do want to give you a chance to tell listeners, if they haven't already downloaded it or subscribed, a little bit about the Next Picture Show podcast. We did allude earlier to the fact that you guys recently discussed 45 Years, Mm -hmm. the movie we positively reviewed earlier in the show, comparing it to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, another classic film about marital dysfunction. Great pairing there. What's coming down the road from the next picture show? I'm actually a little nervous to tease our next pairing because it's a a little controversial, but we're really excited. We think there's going to be a lot to talk about there. Since we're in the dead zone of January and no one really wants a full episode on Dirty Grandpa, uh, we decided to go back to one of the biggest movies of last year, which was Ridley Scott's The Martian, and pair it with uh, another Mars-centric movie that was not quite as successful, which is Andrew Stanton's John Carter. Love it. Yep. There are a couple of us who are secret fans of that movie, okay. so it will not be not so secret soon. I definitely think that movie was greeted a little more harshly than it should have been, so I look forward to that discussion. So do I. You get to hear the next picture show by subscribing in iTunes. Just do a search there, or you can go to nextpictureshow.net. I mentioned the Golden Brick winners who have films coming out. Green Room is a movie with a really interesting sounding plot. A young punk man finds themselves trapped in a secluded venue after stumbling upon a horrific act of violence. Patrick Stewart stars Anton Yelchin and Imogen Poots. It comes out April 15th. Blue Ruin was our Golden Brick winner from 2014. Just Really promising director there in Sunye. Andrea Arnold, she won in 2012 for her movie Wuthering Heights, and she's got a film that may come up 
a little bit later in this segment here called American Honey. Jeff Nichols, of course, our 2011 winner. Take Shelter was the Listener's Choice winner. And Midnight Special is one that we discussed in part one of this preview. Yorgos Lanthimos, the filmmaker who made Dogtooth in 2010, has The Lobster coming out. And Duncan Jones, our inaugural Brick winner for Moon in 2009, has the video game adaptation film Warcraft coming out. So a few titles. Maybe, again, you'll hear some of them sprinkled through this part of the show as we get to our biggest questions surrounding the year in cinema. And I thought it might be fun, actually, to start off by looking back a little bit and assessing how we did last year at this time. I've got your 2015 questions, Josh. And yeah, I've got, I've got mine this as well. This feels like revisiting so, your resolutions. Yeah, a little know, bit. At the midpoint. So I thought maybe we'd both share our questions. I know I shared some of these a few months ago during a setup. We revisited a few of these questions, but I thought it might be fun for Genevieve and for our listeners if we shared those questions. And then as a panel, we can try to answer them, see how the answers actually came out. Okay. Okay, are you ready? Yeah. What you, were your questions? You want me to go? All yeah. right. I asked if Sundance 2015 was going to give us another boyhood. And I would say we didn't get anything as clearly monumental or mainstream, maybe. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tangerine, this year's Golden Brick winner, did play there, um, but it did premiere there. But I don't think it had the sort of mainstream impact that boyhood did. We agree with you. I agree with you. Yes, I I also concur. Can we all agree when I asked how will the Hunger Games end that (laughs) it ended poorly? Really, really (laughs) badly and awkwardly. Yeah, I'll say it... uh... It ended. We'll just say that. <laughs> yes, it did. At this point, we're glad. How many Oscars will go to the cast of Carol? We're still in the nomination yeah. phase. Did I did get two nominations. Yep, I asked specifically about the cast, though. I got to say, I'm still surprised it didn't squeak in as a Best Picture candidate. Mm-hmm. That's not what I was alluding to in that question, though, but maybe an obvious question. Do we think an any Oscars one. are going to go to Rooney Mara or Kate Blanchett? Boy, I haven't, I haven't really looked at the Me other neither, candidates. The, the, the actress categories are just so stacked. Mm-hmm. It's they it would be great if either of them won, but it would be great if pretty much anyone else in either of those categories sure. won too. So it's really hard to. Uh, right now, I'm going to yeah. prognosticate zero are going yeah. to win zero the cast right. of. Carol. But I will say at most two. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Can Tina Fey and Amy Poehler recapture their Golden Globes magic in Sisters? A movie I, really, I don't think you even saw. I really saw. wanted to know that. <laughs> Uh, Not badly enough. I didn't bother to find out. No one convinced me to bother to find out, yeah. really. I mean, that was I, not I a film. I love those two ladies, and I couldn't even Did bring you myself see it? to go see it. No. See, we're in the same boat, yeah. so that's okay. pretty sad. This one's a trickier one to answer here. How will Colin Trevorrow handle the big budget and massive scale of Jurassic World? We were mixed. What's tricky? We were mixed. mixed on that movie. I, I think we spent uh, a fair amount of time trashing kind it? of trashing it. Yeah, yeah. but it's not bad. It's not awful. And and here's the thing. We can sit here all day and pick it apart. The reality is, do you know how much money that movie made? Well, okay. So in terms of how did he so handle the big budget scale, yeah. it made $1.7 billion worldwide. That's insanity. So I think he handled it okay, whether I like the movie much or not. As someone who has seen that movie three times for reasons <gasps> I don't even know, uh, oh. it gets worse every time. So <laughs> okay. That makes sense. That's See, the final it got answer. worse yeah. in my memory as well. So. Okay. My questions for 2015 posed last January. Number one has, I think, a very definitive yes or no answer. Can Cameron Crowe become relevant again? Yikes. (laughs) Well, define relevant. Yeah. Aloha (laughs) did get some conversation, I guess. Can Don Cheadle write and direct himself, or can Don Cheadle write and direct a biopic as innovative as his subject? The movie I'm thinking of is Miles Ahead. 
Cheadle there directing himself as Miles Davis and that That's your number remains four to be seen. Yes, yeah. I just recycled it <laughs> for this year, which I probably should have. Number three, can they make two good Bond films in a row? We disagree mm, about the answer to this one, Josh. Clearly now. <laughs> I say they did, even though Skyfall's way better than Spectre. Number four, can Joe Wright make me care about Peter Pan <laughs> or can Joe Wright make me care about fantasy? Like sisters, I yeah, never did bother to see pick. Pan. So can't answer that question. And finally, number five, can Channing Tatum play a character in Jupiter Ascending? Oh, remember Jupiter Ascending? Where he's part <laughs> the dog first time slash it, wolf since. or something, and he's pretty awful in that film, so the answer is no. He was a space wolf, wasn't he? A space wolf. Wow. I, and I love, I love Channing Tatum. I mean, I'm, I'm Magic Mike forever. We didn't but... even get to him in The Hateful Eight. That's true, we didn't. Wow. really rooting for him. It didn't help my case. <laughs> oh, okay. That's I why, see why Josh. you left him out. All right. So that was fun. But let's move on to more fun 2016 style. We will start with you, Genevieve, your number five question of the movie year. You guys made me really nervous going over how wrong you were last year. <laughs> Get used to it. <laughs> it's harsh. We're bringing your list back. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, my first question all right, I'm cheating right off of the bat here. So, Adam, I learned it from you. My favorite kind but, of guest. <laughs> um, we actually won't have the answer to this question until 2017, but it concerns a movie from 2016. And that question is, will this be the year that Lin-Manuel Miranda becomes the youngest person to EGOT? And for those of you who don't know who I'm talking about, Lin-Manuel Miranda is the writer slash performer slash polymath behind the smash Broadway musical Hamilton, which if you haven't heard about it from at least one person in your life who won't shut up about it, I can be that person in your life because (laughs) I won't shut up about it. He's really in the cultural conversation right now. It was recently awarded the MacArthur Genius Grant, has previously won an Emmy, a Grammy, and a Tony, which means he's one Oscar away from being the youngest person ever to achieve the very rare title of EGOT winner. He actually recently rapped about this very thing at this year's BET Awards, which, if you can look it up, is pretty funny, and I would recommend it. I better back up that big talk. I'm working on various projects. I'm writing a song for The Rock next. You can Google that. I got now, and I got next. Uh, I'm full of surprises. It might take a minute to digest. I'm done it for pulling surprises. Uh, it's a bit of a process, but I got it, Grammy. Got it, Tony. Got it, Emmy. Damn it, homie. Somebody show me the way to the Oscars. But I digress. Hamilton, God bless. Puerto Rico, I see y'all at the Richard Rogers. So enter Disney Animation's Moana, which comes out November 23rd, in which I would be excited about anyway, based on its setting, which is ancient Oceana, Disney Animation's recent track record, which has been great in my opinion, and the involvement of Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who I think we all love, uh, and Taika Watiti. Am I pronouncing that right? Mm-hmm. Taika Watiti. So. You're uh, asking us? Yeah. <laughs> Go with it. Uh, of Film Spotting Favorite, What We Do in the Shadows. But Miranda also wrote music for the film, which means there's a strong possibility, just based on that category's history, that he will wind up in the Best Original Song category at the Oscars. So this is really just a convoluted way of saying that I'm excited for Moana. <laughs> but this is kind of another sort of angle from which to view that excitement and that film in regards to next year awards hmm. season. It's it's like a side bet, if you will. Got it. So um, I, I'm really excited for Moana anyway, but I'm very excited for the potential EGOT that he will win. Yeah, absolutely. That's great stuff. And I'll throw out there that I'm going to be in New York City on 
February 16th. And like the rest of the nation, I'm, of course, looking for a ticket to Hamilton. So if I have any listeners out there who have some connections, you know how to reach us, feedback at filmspotting.net. And and please get me one for the summer. We're going to be there over the summer, and my daughter is begging to see it. And uh, yeah. We have no shame here. I don't know if we're going to be able to pull that off, I told her. I don't know. We've got some listeners in high places. You never know, Josh. Let's see. What about your number five? My number five, can Christopher Guest get his groove back? Oh, let's hope so. I mentioned Guest's upcoming mascots on last show. It's, according to IMDb at least, a look into the world of competitive mascots. I didn't know that exists. Does it really exist? I guess it doesn't have to be to be a Christopher Guest mockumentary about it. This is a mockumentary. I'm assuming it does have some familiar faces. Jennifer Coolidge, Jane Lynch, Parker Posey, Bob Balaban, John Michael Higgins, Fred Willard, and Harry Shearer. So the hope of course, is that this is going to be another best-in-show, maybe even a waiting for Guffman. The concern is (laughs) Guest's last mockumentary, which was way back in 2006, the Hollywood spoof four-year consideration, which was just shockingly flat. I don't know if either of you suffered through that one. Oh, yeah. It was the first just full-blown misfire of Guest's career, unfortunately. So, you know, I'm also concerned a little bit that Guest's MVPs, who I consider to be Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy, they're not on board here. Mm -hmm. Of course, they were for for your consideration, so they're not a guarantee. It looks like Mascots is going to be released exclusively through Netflix, so Hmm. no date for it yet. Great pick. My number five question is, which debaucherous duo will be more dynamic, Elvis and Nixon or Russ and Roger? And Elvis and Nixon, Josh, came up a little bit last week during Mm -hmm. our honorable mentions, talking about our five most anticipated movies of the year, Michael Shannon and Kevin Spacey. Michael Shannon playing playing Elvis Presley, which I see now that I've seen him in the trailer playing Elvis Presley, but I don't know that if someone just threw that out there to me, I would ever buy. Spacey, of course, is one of those kind of master impressionists. So even though I've never seen him do his Nixon before, I'm not surprised that he can pull that off. And it's really just the movie about that famous encounter that set up that famous photograph of Elvis as he was at a point in his career where he was trying to maybe somehow become a little bit more establishment while Richard Nixon was trying to become a little bit more cool, perhaps. They came together. I don't think either of them pulled it off, and maybe that's what the movie is ultimately about. But you've got that combination against Russ and Roger, and I can't believe I don't have this in my notes, but I want to say that this movie, which is called Russ and Roger Go Beyond, is maybe being directed by Michael Winterbottom. Does that sound right to either of you, or this am I completely making yeah, it up? So they're making a movie about that infamous partnership and that collaboration between film critic Roger Ebert and Russ Meyer when they made Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Which I have was, heard about yeah, this. They were working together to make one of the first ever X-rated films by a major studio, Will Ferrell signed on to play Russ Meyer and Josh Gad playing Chicago's own Roger oh, wow. Ebert. I remember so. hearing about that casting, but that was all I heard about that was, yeah. was him playing Ebert. That'll be something. Intriguing cast, intriguing subject matter. Of course, I had to pick a movie about a film critic and a Chicago <laughs> film critic, no less. Whether Winterbottom is correct or not, I will check on that and provide some kind of response in our show notes. (laughs) The fact is, I can't wait to see Russ and Roger go beyond, and Elvis and Nixon sounds great as well. What about your number four question, Genevieve? My number four question is, can Melissa McCarthy and Ben Falcone atone for Tammy with The Boss? I'm just taking it as a given that Melissa McCarthy's other big project this year, Ghostbusters, will be wonderful because McCarthy and Paul Feig together is just always great. It has yet to let me down. 
So I'm actually more curious, have more questions about McCarthy's other upcoming film, The Boss, which comes out in April. She co-wrote it with her husband, Ben Falcone, who also directs, which is the same combination that gave us uh, the mostly reviled Tammy. I didn't hate Tammy the way a lot of people did, but it was definitely a letdown to see her and Falcone kind of flounder when left to their own devices. So the boss was originally called Michelle Darnell, which is the name of McCarthy's character, a character she came up with years ago at the Groundlings. And it's centered on this sort of larger-than-life businesswoman who is sent to prison for insider trading, then has to sort of rebuild her life with the help of Kristen Bell, who I think is her former assistant. Not entirely sure. Trailer is not clear. Now, I'm not sure how big a part this will actually play in the story, but the trailer makes it seem like McCarthy's character teams up with the daughter of Belle's character to sort of take over her Girl Scout-esque troop and turn it into a big business like the one she used to run, which, of course, makes me think of an R-rated troop Beverly Hills, Mm -hmm. which honestly sounds like the best thing ever to me personally. (laughs) So, But I really, really want this movie to be good, not just because I'm always rooting for McCarthy, who I love, or because I'm always rooting for great R-rated comedies, though I am, but I want... McCarthy and Falcone to succeed as a team behind the camera with a character she created. I really believe they have a great movie comedy in them, and I want this to be it. Mm-hmm. What is all this? This is my way back. We are going to start a brownie empire and teach these girls real business skills. We want some good recruits. Get in there, go for the aggressive girls. I feel kind of sweaty and scared. It's just the coffee kicking in. Oh, you know what? Oh, I may have switched them. I put a little splash of bourbon in mine. This is Michelle Darnell, and this is my partner. And I don't mean partner, like girl on girl stuff. What's girl on girl stuff? Something you're gonna dabble with in college, but not stick with, not, you know? Don't tell her. Unless you're Hannah, I think it's gonna fit you like a glove. Don't call it a coup! Yeah, I'm pretty aligned with you on Tammy there and the potential that always seems to be right at the edge of that partnership. I'm going to stick with the McCarthy theme, and my number four question has to do with Ghostbusters. I'm wondering if it can actually top the original. And I think this is a possibility. <laughs> a bold question. I know, heretical question perhaps, but I revisited 1984's Ghostbusters, I think it was last year, for the first time since I was a kid when it was essentially made for me. And I got to admit, I was underwhelmed. I mean, it's still fun. It's still funny. You don't have to admit that, Josh. I you actually can just keep that to yourself. I wouldn't give it sacred cow status. Oh. I mean, if we I had, have been burned I by would. that very observation uh, I loved the it. online community. I loved it and just I'm, as I'm much. Have you, you? Yeah. It's, but I, I've only seen it once. Okay. Yeah. yeah I watched it with my kids it, like yeah, three years ago and we all had a well. blast with okay. it. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, yeah. for me, there's room for improvement. Okay. <laughs> there is room. And I'm certainly intrigued by the approach that is being taken here by the director, Paul Feig, director of Spy, the film that crashed our rap party, I think you could say with as <laughs> <Yeah>. many <laughs> mentions, Adam. Um, his Ghostbusters, all the Ghostbusters are played by women, as everyone knows. Spy star Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, and then Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones of Saturday Night Live fame. So as Linda Holmes talked about at the rap party in relation to Spy, Feig and Melissa McCarthy, they've they've shown that they can inject subversive feminism into something without losing the laughs Mm -hmm. um, and having to sacrifice laughs essentially to get preachy or anything like that. So for me, it means that this casting decision maybe in some corners and in the studio's eyes is a stunt, but they're probably not looking at it that way. It could be a launching pad for something really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Ghostbusters, it's opening July 15th. My number four question is, will we reap the rewards of directors working outside their comfort zones? I've got three filmmakers, three titles here. Maybe this question inspired by Jeff Nichols and Midnight Special, kind of this filmmaker who is focused on these smaller domestic dramas, a little bit of a thriller element maybe to a movie like Mud, and then he's going off to make 
Midnight Special coming out in the next couple months, which is science fiction. And thinking about that kind of change in approach, I look at a movie like Little Men coming out from director Ira Sachs, his film, the two of his that I've seen, 2012's Keep the Lights On and then 2014's Love is Strange, which was one of my favorite movies of that year. Those are both films centered around a gay experience. And that's primarily how he is regarded as a filmmaker, a little bit like Andrew Hay going off and making a movie like 45 Years that doesn't have that element to it. His film that is coming out this year, Little Men, is focused mainly on two young boys and there is a family disagreement between them and they take a vow of silence. And it sounds like very fruitful material, but again, just based on what Sachs has given us before, I can't wait to see what he does with the material, especially since it's something a little bit different from him. Andrea Arnold, that former Golden Brick winner, she's got a film coming out called American Honey. It's a road film about a runaway teenager who is selling magazine subscriptions around the country and gets caught up in a whole lot of interesting activities. This is Andrea Arnold's first U.S.-made feature. She has previously made films like Fish Tank, starring film-spotting madness champion Michael Fassbender, and I believe Red Road is the title of one of her other films that I am a fan of, but both very British films. And finally, Christian Munju, the Romanian filmmaker who gave us the harrowing but brilliant four months, three weeks, and two days, and another film we were big fans of, Beyond the Hills, Mm -hmm. both films about a female experience centered around a friendship between two female characters. And this new film, Family Photos, coming out from Munju, is a film that has a focus on a male protagonist. So maybe not wildly different than what he's done before, but certainly we've come to expect that a little bit from Munju. And I like that he's going in a different direction. I didn't know that we were going to get a new film from Munju this year. That might have made my most anticipated list. Hmm. Loved his stuff so far. That brings us to number three on our list of questions of the movie year, Genevieve. Okay. This question was actually inspired by some listener feedback from last week's episode. And that question is, might, might this be the year we finally see a great video game adaptation on film? Mm. Last week, Ben from Texas called into the show to try and sell you guys on the Assassin's Creed movie. Yeah, I think he almost and pulled it off. I, well, I, don't, I was going to say, I don't know if he convinced you, but he sort of convinced me that along with Warcraft, which you previously mentioned, and a couple slightly less prestigious sounding animated uh, films, there's a Ratchet and Clank movie coming out, which I love that game, but don't have high hopes for the movie. And I guess the Angry Birds movie might be considered a, <laughs> a video game adaptation. But the point is that 2016 has the best odds I can remember of turning out a video game film adaptation that is artistically as well as commercially successful. It's far from a safe bet, but it's an element of this year's release calendar that I'm sort of keeping an eye on. Yeah. The proof will be if uh, Adam agrees to review either (laughs) Assassin's Creed or Warcraft. Yeah. I don't see that happening. I might be able to talk you into... Wow. That's a great question. And obviously, it will depend ultimately on what else is opening that weekend. Sure. I think just maybe because of Genevieve's question and because of Ben's voicemail that we shared last week, the fact that it's Fastbender and has that crew that gave us Macbeth, even though I haven't seen it yet, clearly there's some artistic ambition being brought to Assassin's Creed. And then the fact that it's Duncan Jones doing Warcraft and I loved Moon and Source Code. Have I might seen, be in. Have you seen, I think it was before Force Awakens, the Warcraft trailer? No. Oh, okay, it's, you'll, you'll it's be out when you see that. It's a bad trailer. It's a bad <laughs> just trailer. Know, just knowing your, your uh, disdain for fantasy alone. Yeah. Assassin's Creed, that one we might talk about. Okay. Do. We'll okay. see. My number three, never mind peak TV, which was a point of discussion last year, but I'm wondering if we finally reached peak superhero mm-hmm. in 2016. 
personally, this is the least intriguing superhero lineup in years for me. And, you know, I'm open to these films. I, I'm not necessarily a comic book geek, but I have enjoyed them in the past greatly and uh, hope to enjoy them again in the future. But bear with me while I read these titles. <laughs> Deadpool. We don't have enough time Batman for this. Batman v Superman. <laughs> Captain America Civil War. X-Men Apocalypse, Suicide Squad, Gambit, Doctor Strange. There may be one I'm leaving out there. That, that actually seems kind of short to me. I think you could just start like putting random words together as superhero names. And oh, we'd Suicide buy Squad. Yeah, no, Suicide you got that squad. one. Yeah. Okay. Did I have that one? Technically not superheroes, but... See, I, I've yeah. probably crossed... Super villains just in listing is what they those are. titles, I've crossed many lines that I should know <laughs> things should have been said differently. But, you know, I am looking forward to Captain America, as I said on last episode. Otherwise, there's not much that promising here, at least to my knowledge. I'm talking about curious casting Mm -hmm. or intriguing directors or even like new directions in what to do with the superhero genre, at least according to the trailers. So it does feel a bit to me like the Hollywood superhero production factory has reached its peak production point and we're, you know, I'm just not sure if that's going to make for the most riveting cinema. No. I'll happily be proven wrong. We'll see. Yeah. We will see. I'm hoping, I'm holding out hope for Doctor Strange as being a little strange with the batch uh, yeah, right yeah, yeah. and I I'm, think I'm, if... I'm hoping it'll lean to the guardians of the galaxy side of the marvel universe and kind of get away a little bit from the marvel template and with cumberbatch i think yeah that is certainly an intriguing element there well i'm gonna go completely the opposite direction here from the superheroes and those big blockbusters you're talking about my number three question is will sing make us hail the return of garth jennings <laughs> and maybe since you're giving me that bemused look like you have no idea what I'm talking about. Maybe the this, question should be, country music guy? will Sing make us hail the arrival of Garth Jennings for most people listening? But Garth Jennings is part of the pairing, along with Nick Goldsmith, that was known as Hammer and Tongs. They were most famous for making music videos. Then they made The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in 2005, which I was not a big fan of. But they made in 2007 a little bit of heaven called Son of Rambo that oh, yeah, Sam and I yeah, went yeah. and saw at Sundance in 2007 was the film of the festival for really us. Fun we film. gushed about that film. It was our favorite movie of that Sundance, and it really didn't come out for an entire year. I don't even know if it made it out in 2008, but it kind of just disappeared, unfortunately, and we were trying to beat the drum for it as much as we could because it's just such a sweet movie that, as I've said a few times here on the show, really captures the sense of imagination and wonder that... I certainly remember as a young boy, especially when you become obsessed with a certain movie or a piece of pop culture, and the Rambo from the title comes from these two young boys, one of whom is being raised in a really strictly religious family. They can't watch any pop culture or movies. He becomes obsessed with the movie Rambo after watching it at a friend's house, and they decide to set out and make their own version of Rambo. So, of course, I fell for that movie, Josh. But since 2007, Garth Jennings has not released any feature films and his imdb page is basically blank he's no longer working with nick goldsmith directly i'm still really curious about what he can do after son of rambo and this movie has a pretty interesting cast it's an animated musical that stars matthew mcconaughey it's got seth MacFarlane, reese witherspoon scarlett johansson in the movie, and it's supposed to come out next holiday season, December 21st. That's a very much a different direction. Animated musical featuring animals. They're all animals. <laughs> okay. So I, I, w- I was first alerted to the existence of that movie when I was saying to myself, are there any good musicals coming out this year? Uh-huh. That's a potential question, but that, that movie shall see. is coming out, so yep. <laughs> it's possible. All right. Number two, Genevieve. <laughs> Number two is 
can Connor for real possibly recapture the comedic brilliance of MacGruber? (laughs) (laughs) So before you answer with a definitive no, it cannot possibly, because I know we're all huge fans of MacGruber here, let me sort of lay out what Connor for real is. It's a second film directed by Jarma Tacone after MacGruber and co-stars him, Andy Samberg, and Akiva Schaefer, the three of whom make up the comedic music group The Lonely Island. They star as members of a former boy band who attempt to get the group back together after the solo rap album by Samberg's character Bombs. It's produced by Judd Apatow, it's written by the three Lonely Island guys, and it sounds like the sort of inspired silliness that's right in the wheelhouse of the guys behind songs like Jack Sparrow and I'm on a Boat. I assume there will be tons of great hilarious music in this thing as well, though we don't have a trailer yet. Now, (laughs) all kidding aside, I think MacGruber is a really great movie comedy that's taken on a sort of unfair reputation. Hmm. We made it our movie of the week back at the Dissolve. So if you're curious for further thoughts on that, I would suggest Googling <laughs> that. But but what I took away from that movie, which I'd never seen before, would never have seen if it weren't for Matt Singer of SVU, who is a, a huge fan, is Tacconi is actually a really good comedic director. He has a really good sense of style and a combination of reverence and irreverence that has worked really well in the Lonely Island music videos, which he's directed and I think works wonderfully in MacGruber. Hmm. I got it. Better get you sewn up. No. Leave it open. I like balls. You know, I need to see it. I know it has its defenders, and uh, I've been meaning to catch up with it. I am, I will say, a fan of Sandberg's Hot Rod, which Mm -hmm. has a handful of the same people. So, yeah, Yeah. this, this definitely has potential. Okay. Adam, the look on your face I, from me just saying I'm a fan of Hot Rod. I was just thinking. <laughs> Sacred Cow Hot that's Rod? That's totally something Josh would say. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> that's what it looked like. Number two, will Jodie Foster finally make her mark as a director? <laughs> this probably won't shock you either, Adam, but uh, I'm a big fan of Foster's Bizarre the Beaver. Did you see the Didn't beaver? Didn't see it. Did you see the Beaver, Genevieve? Okay, not many, not many people did. It was her last directorial effort. That's the one where Mel Gibson plays a depressed toy company executive who seeks the counsel of an animal hand puppet. It's a black comedy, but she makes it work. I didn't see Foster's Home for the Holidays, and I remember her directing debut, which was way back in 1991, Little Man Tate. I, I basically remember it being fine. Not much more than that, but. Still, she does have a, a talent behind the camera and I think a unique sensibility that's uh, it's still you know, promising to me. So I'm intrigued by her film in 2016, Money Monster, which sounds something like uh, maybe a high finance spin on network. George Clooney plays a TV finance guru whose studio is taken hostage while he's live on air by an irate investor. And here's the bonus. The hostage taker is played by film spotting favorite Jack O'Connell of mm. Startup. We are live in five minutes. You have the revisions for the opening. We're still making some changes. Am I going to get the changes before the show or you after know the, the show? Drill. You just point the camera in my direction. We'll figure it out together. It always sounds so simple and yet so moronic. Here he is, the Wizard of Wall Street himself. The name is Lee Gates. The show is Money Monster. Without risk, there is no reward. Should I sell? Should I unload? Get some balls. Man up. Who's that guy on camera too? You want to complain about it? Go ahead. Who is it? Anybody know? Was this a union thing? Whoever's in there, turn the cameras on. Turn the cameras on, Patty. Turn them on. What am I gonna do? Turn them on. Uh, Put it up. 
Julia Roberts is also in the cast. She plays Clooney's producer. So that's interesting, too. Money Monster opens May 13, and um, I hope it's a big win for Foster. Unfortunately, I've had my fill of Wall Street movies, so (laughs) sorry. How could they ever be better than The Big Short? That's exactly what I'm saying, Josh. My number two question is, will War Machine crank out the streams, or how legit are Netflix and Amazon as sources for original movie content? So thinking about a movie like War Machine... Brad Pitt stars as Stanley McChrystal. It's based on the general Stanley McChrystal, based on the novel The Operators, The Wild and Terrifying Inside Story of America's War in Afghanistan by the author Michael Hastings. It focuses on McChrystal's interview in Rolling Stone where he mocked Obama officials and was subsequently fired. That happened in 2010. David Mishad, who made The Rover, a film we split on widely, but we both agreed about Animal Kingdom, as I recall, his Mm -hmm. feature before that. He is directing this film, and it's the follow-up, if you overlook that little Adam Sandler foray, to Beasts of No Nation from Netflix in terms of their big, prestigious movie release, and they paid over $60 million for it. So apparently they think it's going to do some magic for them. See, my question for that was going to be, could David Michaud possibly top the rover? That's that's what I'm hoping. <laughs> Not my question. The answer is he can. He most definitely can, Josh. And that does bring up this larger question just about Netflix and sites like Amazon as these sources for original content, because you look at Sundance over the weekend, the big movie that everybody was going crazy about that I am very curious about before all the buzz came out. That's Kenneth Lonergan's Manchester by the Sea. Amazon won the bidding war for that. I think they paid $10 million for it. So you're going to continue to see this. They're going to be major players in this. And it's embarrassing to say, but I am only just now fully realizing the extent of the reach of streaming sites like this. I watched Mozart in the Jungle that won the Golden Globe Mm -hmm. for comedy series on Amazon Prime just because I became aware of the fact that Gael Garcia Bernal was in it. Lola Kirk is in it. It's about music, of course, about a symphony, and it sounded intriguing. So I started watching it on Amazon Prime. The episodes are 24 minutes long, and you just click a button, and they go to the next one. Sure. And I literally watched six episodes in one sitting, and then the next sitting, the other four, and I finished season one. And then a few days later, I knocked out season two in a few days. And and Again, now you I know, feel empty inside. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm missing it. But I know there are tons of people out there listening who are like, yeah, we've been watching series on Hulu and Amazon and Netflix and other places like that for a long time. Where have you been, Adam? But it's it's something I'm now very aware of and thinking about. So I'm curious how movies are going to transfer to that. Venue. Well, the question, you know, the question for me is, is probably the obvious one. It's just a sense of scale, because when I talk about something like Christopher Guest's mascots being on Netflix, I feel like, oh, okay, okay, you know, I'd like to see that in a theater mainly to be with an audience who's hopefully laughing, mm-hmm. but I don't need to. But I talk about David Michaud, who is a supreme visual stylist and knows how to use the size and space of the screen masterfully. The only way I might possibly be able to see his next movie is even on, you know, if I have a fairly big TV at home, mm-hmm. that is not very promising. Yeah, and I don't know how maybe they'll do a this all works well. exactly. Yeah. Beastman Nation did get seen right. in theaters. That, you know, so that's maybe the ideal will. because mm-hmm. it's the accessibility for everyone, and still those who want to can see it how it really should be seen. That brings us to our number one question of the year, Genevieve. All right. Well, you brought up Sundance, so I'm going to ask just how big a deal will Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation be? I'm sure you guys are following the buzz out of Sundance, mm-hmm. um, which is still going on as we record this. And last night, the buzz turned deafening following the premiere screening of a film called Yes, Birth of a Nation. 
It's the directorial debut of actor, activist, and my personal crush object, Nate Parker, whom you may remember from excellent films like Eight Them Body Saints and Beyond the Lights, and less excellent films like Red Tails. Parker wrote, directed, and stars, and received standing ovations at Sundance both before and after the screening of the film, which reportedly tells a Braveheart-esque story of the 1831 slave rebellion led by Nat Turner, who is played by Parker. As of today, there's a bidding war going on for the film. Last time I saw it was like at 17 million was the, the high bid, and if it doesn't end up getting an awards season release this year, I will eat the glossy photo of Nate Parker that I have hanging in my locker. Uh, I kind of want to see that, yeah. but I also want to see the film. I I, I bought a locker just so I could hang a picture of, of him in it. But kind of what strikes me most about this film is the timing when social discussions of both diversity in Hollywood and racial inequality all over are at sort of a fever pitch right now. And this is just a couple years after the runway success of 12 Years a Slave, which mines similar territory. Obviously, I don't want to presume a film's Oscar chances when I haven't seen a frame and when 99.9% of the world haven't seen a frame of it. And it's not like there haven't been Sundance hits that have sputtered out when they've reached the real world. But let's just say I'll be very excited if Birth of a Nation ends up being as big of a deal Mm -hmm. as it seems like it might end up being. Well, Josh, maybe you can wrap up the top five here because my number one question is a perfect transition from everything Genevieve just said. My question is, which minority movies will the Academy (laughs) get credit for nominating or crushed for ignoring (laughs) in 2016? And if you've heard Wesley Morris talk on the Bill Simmons podcast or read him in the New York Times where he had a dialogue about the Oscars with Manola Dargis and A.O. Scott, he's pointed out, others have pointed out that as we get into this Oscar controversy a little bit, the system and the dearth of choices are the real culprit here, not necessarily the Academy. And he comments on how if you look back at the films that had the best shot of getting nominated, Beasts of No Nation, there's a lot of respect for that, but maybe not much adoration. There's open disdain for concussion and Will Smith's performance from everybody I've heard. Straight out of Compton, definitely for me, had at least two really strong performances in it by African-American men, but the film is just okay, certainly not one of the top eight or even 18 of the year. I do think, of course, that Creed was a Mm. big missed opportunity for Best Picture. Ryan Coogler as director and Michael B. Jordan as star, they all warranted strong consideration. And maybe they got it and were just edged out. But as Morris said, he didn't think the studio simply knew how to campaign for that movie and basically didn't push it at all. So I'm thinking about the films that are coming out this year, trying to get a read on whether or not we're going to have some candidates. And I found an article that came out in December called 11 Films with Black Stars to Look Forward to in 2016. And it was published before the Oscar nominations came out. The titles don't bode well in terms of Oscar caliber material. Let's just say that Vivica A. Fox in Independence Day Resurgence, The Best Man Wedding, Kidnap with Halle Berry, Barbershop The Next Cut, Ride Along 2, Central Intelligence, The Rock Movie with Kevin Hart. I love Anthony Mackie, I'm excited about Captain America Civil War, but I don't know that that screams best picture or best supporting actor. And that goes for Idris Elba as the villain in Star Trek Beyond as well. Then I see a little bit more about Suicide Squad, a film I've been completely avoiding as much as I can, other than that Jared Leto crazy Joker face that keeps popping up everywhere. And it piqued my interest that it's got Will Smith and Viola Davis and... The actor whose name I'm going to butcher, who I remember as Adebisi from Oz on HBO, Adewale Akunue Agbaji. But then I watched the trailer and you realize that Davis is just an official who assembles the team. Agbaji is a killer crocodile man. They're probably not the answer either. And 
as I was putting this question together and writing these notes and scouring for options, that was Sunday. And then, as you said, Genevieve, on Monday, the birth of a nation thing happened at the Eccles Center in Sundance. And maybe that's it. I can't wait, obviously, to see it based on the rapturous responses that it got on Twitter and all of the comments about the extended standing ovation. Maybe that's the movie that we'll see in contention next year. Or maybe Oscar will want to be the first to honor a killer crocodile man next year <laughs> and, and break through in that way. We can dream. You know, I mean, okay, so obviously change has to come earlier in the pipeline. That's clear. But I, not to open the whole can of worms, but I don't want to downplay how there were missed opportunities this year. I mean, Creed, as you mentioned, is maybe the most obvious. But it's not illogical that Chirac would have been considered. And obviously, I have a dog in this fight. It was on my top 10 list. But if you look at it just from an Oscar perspective, mm-hmm. you have a movie that got critical acclaim. Uh, it was on Richard Brody in The New Yorker. I mean, some heavy hitters got behind this thing. And I know it didn't make a ton of money. And it premiered on Amazon. So maybe that hit against it. But just being Spike Lee, this is a two-time Oscar nominee. What do the Oscars love? comeback stories. What's the likelihood that, you know, Lee at this stage in his career is going to have another movie that makes this much noise? So irregardless of how you feel, well, right, but irregardless how you feel about the film itself, it follows that Oscar narrative. And Tiana Paris in the lead role gives would have easily been among my top five performances of the year, never mind male Mm -hmm. or female. So if you sat down and watched the film, that thing will knock you out, her performance. Mm -hmm. There is an opportunity to. So I think there's legitimacy to the complaints. But yes. Well, no, there are legitimacy to the complaints, but there's also legitimacy to what Wesley Morris was saying, which is a movie like Chirac certainly had no push behind it for the Oscars whatsoever. And his point is, and many others as well, is that the Academy needs that, unfortunately. It has become that, where they need that direction. They need yeah, those big campaigns to really influence how they How do you account for Selma, which had a huge campaign I know. Yeah. last year? Yeah. I mean, Chirac was in their face. I, I don't buy it in that case. But anyways, yeah. for number one, for my number one question, is Tom Ford more than a one-hit wonder? It's been about six years since Ford shocked the movie world with a single man which he adapted from a Christopher Isherwood novel, and Ford was the writer and director there. Colin Firth in A Single Man played an English professor in 1960s L.A. who was trying to cope with the sudden death of his younger partner. It was astonishingly assured, I think, in its guiding of performances and also um, the the use of objects to convey emotional states. Carol reminded me of A Single Man in this matter of Mm -hmm. just uh, how crucial the objects and the set design and the costume design played a part in the film. Uh, Ford's new movie this year is Nocturnal Animals, and it sounds like sort of a metatextual drama about the ex-wife of a novelist who becomes immersed in one of his manuscripts. It has quite the cast. Jake Gyllenhaal, who I think has been at the top of his game lately. lately, and Amy Adams, Army Hammer, Michael Shannon, and Isla Fisher. There's no set release date other than 2016 for Nocturnal Animals, uh, so uh, we'll see when it actually comes out. But if Ford can match or even Mm -hmm. surpass a single man, that'd be really something. It caught my eye as well because of the cast, but also for Ford and wanting to see what he would do next. Those are our top five questions of the movie year. Any honorable mentions that you consider, Genevieve? Yeah, I kind of had a a softer, gentler version of one of Josh's, which was, will Marvel Studios maintain its juggernaut status in the superhero movie world? Um, You know, you mentioned Civil War and Doctor Strange as being Marvel's two big movies this year. And, you know, they're they're probably going to be just fine, if not good. 
But there's also Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad coming from DC, and 20th Century Fox has Deadpool and, and X Men Apocalypse. And I'm just more I'm more interested in more of those than I am for Civil War, yeah, which hmm. is just like hmm. Avengers on steroids to me, probably. Okay. <laughs> and then um, my other honorable mention question is which, if any, long after the fact sequel will be worth our time? This is the year we have Independence Day Resurgence, Bridget Jones's Baby, Bad Santa 2, Zoolander 2, Rings, sequel to The Ring. Really? Yes. My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2 and previously mentioned Barbershop, the the next cut. I almost said the new class. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, one one of those might be good. Bad bad Santa 2. Maybe. Yeah. That's where my money is. Oh, I'm I'm not betting on that race at all. You didn't like Bad Santa? I didn't see it. Oh, I, so I, I, I love Bad Santa, but yeah. I don't think anyone is in, from that is involved in this. Oh, not Ooh. even Billy Bob Thornton? I, I honestly, I, I could. I retract my uh, bet yeah. if he's not in it. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Josh? Uh, the only other one I thought about is uh, if J.A. Bayona can win you back. Juan Antonio Bayona. Yes. Yes, the orphanage. And, and the unfortunately, wonderful, intense, riveting, <laughs> the impossible. <laughs> it's impossible, all right. <laughs> we'll see. That's your question? That's my question. I love it. I wish you'd included that. It had me in it. That would have been (laughs) perfect for your top five. You know. (laughs) I've got a few more. Imagine that. This probably should have been my number one. John Wick 2, best film of 2016 (laughs) or best film of all time? (laughs) Will Asghar Farhadi deliver my metafix for 2016? Of course, the great director behind A Separation, About Ellie, Fireworks Wednesday, part of our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon. He's got a movie coming out supposedly about a couple performing together and Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. You're all over it. I'm all over it. It's called (laughs) Seller or the Salesman. Will Olivier Assayas work his magic again with Kristen Stewart, speaking of people Mm. in plays together? His new movie coming out is Personal Shopper, and I love this. Now Stewart is in the Parisian fashion world, and she is a personal shopper to someone famous or rich, I imagine, who becomes involved with ghosts. I love that. Yeah. I'm How can you top that? How many Terrence Malick films will come out in 2016? <laughs> and please, Lord, will one of them be better than To the Wonder? That's my question. Oh, come on. He's got the Austin set Weightless, which just listen to this cast if you haven't already looked at this. Gosling, Portman, Rooney Mara, Michael Fassbender, Christian Bale, Kate Blanchett, Benicio Del Toro, Val Kilmer. He's got Gosling and Fassbender together in the same film. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not fair. That's that's just not fair. I don't think that works. That's too much masculinity and cool in one film, so it'll probably be terrible. He also has Voyage of Time coming out, an IMAX film that I believe is more educational, and then Knight of Cups. I believe that also stars Christian Bale. They're all supposed to come out in 2016. Maybe none of them We will. better get Knight of Cups. Yeah. yeah, I think I was listening to this show from like 2014 and you guys were talking probably. about exactly. Knight of Cups. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mentioned Manchester by the Sea being a big hit at Sundance, the Kenneth Lonergan film, his follow-up to Margaret. So my question is, will Manchester by the Sea live up to the Sundance hype? And my last two, will Michael Pena continue his string Mm -hmm. of stealing every movie he's in? He's in John Michael McDonough's War on Everyone that also stars Alexander Skarsgård. Listeners will know McDonough from Calvary, one of my favorite films of the past couple of years. And finally, just what about some of these directors making comebacks? Jim Sheridan who I loved in in America, is making a movie called The Secret Scripture and Nicholas Winding Refn, even though I don't know if it's a comeback from a terrible movie. I didn't see Only God Forgives. I just know its reputation, but I did love his work. Reputation stands. Yeah, I love his work in Drive and Bronson, and he's got The Neon Demon coming out, the story of a model who moves to L.A., and I guess there's probably a whole lot of violence, and (laughs) it will probably look stylishly cool. 
Those are my honorable mentions, and those are, again, our top five questions of the movie year. We want to know your picks or any other comments about the show. Send them to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. On Twitter, you can find us at filmspotting. That's Adam. Larson on film is me. We're also at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives. While you're there, take a moment to vote in the current film spotting poll, your most anticipated pre-summer movie, the Directors We Love edition. We're pitting the Coen brothers against Richard Linklater and Jeff Nichols. Out in wide release this weekend, Fifty Shades of Black, not a sequel yet. It is a parody of Fifty Shades of Grey starring Marlon Wayans. The Finest Hours, the true story of a maritime rescue circa 1952. It does have a pretty good cast. Casey Affleck, Ben Foster, Chris Pine, Eric Bana as well. The trailer looks just god-awful. The trailer that, for some reason, I was forced to see about 600 times Mm -hmm. last year. I think it was before every movie. Oh, man. It looks brutal. Jane Got a Gun, a Western starring Natalie Portman and Kung Fu Panda 3 out. In limited release here in Chicago, Anesthesia, directed by Tim Blake Nelson with the aforementioned Kristen Stewart. And I, of course, have to turn this over to you, Josh Thailand's own Joe, or his more formal name. Apichit Pongrastakun. I don't know how you do that. (laughs) He's got Cemetery of Splendor and Mekong Hotel making their Chicago premiere at the Gene Siskel Film Center. And then Son of Saul, nominated for Best Foreign Language Film and recommended by Josh Larson. Not for the faint of heart, Hmm. but a unique experience. Next week, we will dive into our four-part Elaine May Marathon. We're going to talk about 1971's A New Leaf. It is available to stream on most platforms. We hope that you get a chance to check it out in time for our discussion next week. The top five is TBD. Got a few ideas floating out there. If you've got a good one for us, email it to us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candice Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Thank you, Genevieve, for sitting in. Hopefully it wasn't too rough and you can join us again sometime. I've had worse. (laughs) (laughs) Where can people find more information about you, more of your stuff? Uh, Probably following me on Twitter is the best bet. I'm at Genevieve Kosky, and uh, I will occasionally appear on the next picture show, but mostly be behind the scenes. Indeed. Doing a great job, though, on that podcast. Yeah. Thank you again for coming on. Our music this week is from The Noise FM. More information is at thenoisefm.net. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.